Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but my guess is not many of us know that story. <laughs> I didn't discover it till about 30 years into my ministry. I've preached on it three times over the years. Once in the last church I served, about 30 years ago, yeah, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, once, 10 years ago, out at Lake Junaluska at a meeting of the General Board of Church and Society of our church, and today, just the third time in 30 years. Uh, and, and yet, since I, since I found that story, maybe I'd read it before, I don't know, but since it grabbed me, got my attention, it's lurked around in the recesses of my mind and every now and then makes its way out towards the edges. It's told twice in the Old Testament. This passage Barbara just read for us from 1 Chronicles. And another version, probably the older version, in 2 Samuel. But the two are virtually the same. Let me give you as much of the setting as I can. David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, is leading his army... He's been king about seven years. He's leading his army in the first major battle they had with the Philistines. Now, this is David's first major battle, but the Philistines were age-old enemies of the Israelites. It's about a thousand years before Christ. About seven years into David's 40 years as king. The battle was in a valley, taking place in a valley not far outside Bethlehem. David and his officers were holed up in a cave in the hills above the valley, and the Philistines, their enemy, had occupied Bethlehem. Now, remember, it can be very hot in Israel. And unless you've got access to a well or a spring... The only drinking water in those days would have been stored in a cistern. And a cistern is basically a hole dug in the ground or, or hewn out of the rock to catch rainwater. So you've got this hewn out place in the rock catching rainwater for them to drink, and the sun shines on it all day in 90 degree weather. The water is hot, and tastes pretty flat. I don't know how long David had been drinking water from a cistern, but it was long enough that he was tired of it. And he wanted some better water, the kind of water we have here in Haywood County. He remembered that there was a well by the gate into Bethlehem. And he remembered that the water from that well was cool, refreshing. And so he said, said uh, rather offhandedly it seems, but it's, the Bible uses an interesting word, longingly. <laughs> longingly, oh, I wish, oh, I wish. He said, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Just kind of said that. Well, 
three of his 30 warriors, they were called his mighty men, three of them overheard him. That's all it took. Got dark. These three slipped through the Philistine lines, made their way to the well, filled up a container with that cool, fresh water, slipped back through the enemy lines, back up the hill into the cave, and brought the water to David. Now here's where the story gets really challenging. My natural tendency would be to think that a grateful David would thank these three warriors for what they'd done and enjoy that water they'd brought him. But he didn't do that. He did something strange, maybe even ungrateful, at least some might think that. He, <laughs> he poured it out on the ground, wouldn't drink a drop, poured the water out to the Lord, it says. And that's kind of reminiscent of an ancient ritual of sacrifice. But ritual or not, how would you react if you were one of the three? You've just brought David this water. He pours it out. I don't know how I would react, but I can imagine that they might have thought, see if we ever do anything like that for him again. <laughs> no, that's it. I mean, no more grateful than that. But that's not what happened. The rest of the story has intrigued me for 30 years. Listen. David would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, My God forbid that I should do this. Can I drink the blood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. At the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. And the story ends very cryptically. The three warriors did these things. Well, then the text goes back to the battles with the Philistines, and, and we learn, reading on, that under David's leadership, the Israelites defeated the Philistines. They became David's subjects for the remainder of his reign. David recovered the Ark of the Covenant containing the commandments that the Philistines had stolen. He returned it to Jerusalem, and to this day, to this day, Jerusalem is called the city of of David. Now what do you make of that? What do you make of what David did, pouring this water out on the ground? David was a complex man, conflicted, imperfect. We could spend several Sundays reflecting on his remarkable strengths and on his equally remarkable weaknesses. He was a conflicted Mixed man, he knew his own weakness, he knew his own sin. The 51st Psalm is attributed to David, and in that Psalm he wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, cleanse me 
from my sin. And that's one way to think of David, complicated, conflicted, sinful, imperfect. But in this story, I believe, we see David at his best. At his best. And that's where I want to focus for a few minutes. That's an unusual story, as I say. David, like the rest of us, was a mixture. Good, evil, saint, sinner, faithful, faithless. And yet God worked through him. And that's what we see in this story, how a conflicted and imperfect person can act in a humble and unselfish way. And in doing that, David shows us something important about leadership. Something about a trait of leadership that inspires confidence and loyalty. Something we can learn from. Something that often seems to be in short supply today. The ability to rise above self-interest. Humble and selfless regard for others. Now, obviously, only a few people ever rise to the level of leadership of David or some of the political, military, religious, civic leaders that we see in our world today. But, but if you think about it, every one of us here possesses influence. Every one of us possesses influence and exercises leadership in some arena of life. In your family or your neighborhood association, or this church, or a civic club, or your workplace, or a professional organization, or a sports team, or a political organization, or an appointed or elected office in government, every one of us has a sphere of influence. And think about how we got those places. We may have been born into some of them. But in most places, we continue to hold a place of influence, or we achieve it in the first place, in part because of somebody else. Just reflect for a minute on the opportunities the privileges of leadership and influence that have come to you. And think of the person or persons who helped you along the way. Somebody opened a door or wrote a letter or made a recommendation or paid a visit or made a phone call, or had a conversation, or contributed to a scholarship, or cast a vote. Somebody sensed in one of countless possible ways that you might benefit from or make a contribution through something they could do for you. And that's all it took. We've all come to the place where we are in life, in part at least, because in a manner of speaking, somebody brought us water from a well in Bethlehem. 
So what do we do with the confidence shown in us? What do we do with the responsibility and privilege bestowed on us because somebody believed in us? Well, I think we've got two options. We can drink the water. We can use the influence and leadership we're given for our own benefit to satisfy our own desires, to secure our own comfort or power or authority. That's the first option. We can drink the water. Or we can pour the water out to the Lord because we recognize and we value the devotion, the commitment, the concern, the selflessness of whoever brought the water. There's another way to say this. A major responsibility of leadership is to understand that we are stewards, stewards of the devotion and support that make it possible. And being a good steward of the gift of leadership means we will not use it to our own advantage, but for the good of others. It's sometimes called <laughs> the common good. That's not just a political concept. That's a moral consideration. 21 years ago, Becky's reminded us already, 21 years ago today, the United States experienced one of the most devastating, terrifying attacks on our country and its history. Destruction of the Twin Towers in New York City, crashing of an airplane into the Pentagon, crashing of another airplane into a field in Pennsylvania because the passengers on that plane decided to give their own lives to save the lives of others, though they didn't know who else's life they were saving. In that whole story, there were terrorists whose intent was to achieve their own cruel and selfish objectives. There were innocent people and their families who suffered unspeakable tragedy that still haunts this country today. And there were firefighters, police personnel, and other first responders who risked their lives, and it cost some of them their lives, to do what they could do to help. Every one of those persons was in a position of leadership. The ones we continue to remember with gratitude and with respect are the ones who demonstrated the incredible courage and compassion of being responsible stewards of their influence. We're in a struggle today in this country in our world at virtually every level of our common life over what kind of leadership will prevail. Self-serving power and control or selfless concern for the common good. We're on the cusp of another election cycle in American life. And that brings with it a wide range of decisions and a lot of different reasons behind those decisions. We're a country of multiple political convictions, and there's something healthy about that. There's no one political perspective that is comprehensive enough 
to have all the answers to the challenges that confront us. There just isn't. There's no single issue, concern, that is comprehensive enough on its own to be the whole basis for leadership in today's world. There just isn't. There's no one person who is wise enough to tell everybody else the way things ought to be. There just isn't. Government and society and life are simply too complex for that. So in addition to the multiple concerns of political ideology that influence our choices, let me raise another criterion. In a world of imperfect leaders and complex choices, give character a role. Give character a role. Someone told me a while back, I based my decisions about voting on policy, not on the person. Well, that's one way to think about it. But remember David who would not indulge himself at the expense of his mighty warriors. Matthew records in his gospel that when Jesus gathered with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, he gave them bread and he gave them a cup and he told them, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant and notice his language, that is poured out, poured out for many. And Mark tells us that when two of Jesus' disciples asked him for places of honor at the table, one on his right, one on his left, he said to them, whoever wishes to be first among you must be your servant. It's a grand vision, a vision of a more noble principle in our common life than self-serving power or the silencing of those who are different. In many ways, it's an elusive principle. It's difficult to define. It's a vision, not a road map. But it's the kind of vision that can build community in families, neighborhoods, churches, towns, cities, our nation, and our world. It's a vision that looks beyond self-interest, that appreciates the sacrifices others have made on our behalf, and that will not indulge self at the expense of others. But I sometimes wonder, do character and humility matter in public life? Is it too grand a vision? Sam Wells is an Anglican priest. He served uh, for seven years as the dean of the chapel at Duke University. He left there 10 years ago. He went back to London, his home, to become the vicar at St. Martin in the Fields, 
remarkable parish church that stands at Trafalgar Square in the heart of London. I want you to listen to some words that Sam wrote two days ago. Few of us have experienced life without Elizabeth II being our queen. If there's one quality we'd all recognize in the queen beyond duty, selflessness, and dignity, it would be humility. <laughs> An aside, if you want to see the queen at her humble best, children, you children who are here, do you know Paddington Bear? Get your parents to go to YouTube or Google. They can find it. They're smart, and they'll figure it out. And find the YouTube presentation of Queen Elizabeth at her 70th anniversary as queen, having tea with Paddington Bear. <laughs> it's wonderful. So you children, remember, when you get home, ask your parents to find that. Humility, said Sam. He went on, it's paradoxical to speak of humility when describing a person who spent her life in palaces and grandeur, but the queen never sought status, recognition, fame, or celebrity for herself. She always held her office as a gift from God and understood her role to be a blessing to her people. It's not too grand to say she modeled her life on that of Christ. As St. Paul says, Christ did not regard His exalted status as something to be exploited, but emptied Himself. The Queen emptied herself into her role within the Constitution to be consulted, to encourage, and to warn. And then he asks an interesting question. How many times over 70 years have we as a nation and a world had reason to be proud and grateful for her calm head in troubled times? How few of us have ever truly known her opinions and inclinations? How few of us have ever truly known her opinions and inclinations? And what a testimony that is to her discretion and impartiality. And yet one thing we all knew, because she repeated it explicitly each Christmas, her uncomplicated, humble faith in the God of Jesus Christ, guiding her embrace guiding her embrace of all the kinds and conditions of people over whom she reigned. It's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Humble, selfless service for the greater good of others. So simple, so difficult, so counter to what our world often regards as strong leadership. 
David would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, My God forbid that I should do this. Can I drink the blood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. A grand vision. May God give us the sight and the insight to see.